Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Now you can see the, the tension is building as we enter this chapter from what we just concluded last week. The plot is being set to kill Jesus. And you notice that right at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus had finished all these sayings. In other words, the Olivet Discourse has come to an end. And he's being very specific. In fact, each time he tells his disciples that he must suffer, he must die in Jerusalem, there's a little bit more revelation each time. And they must be getting, I can't help but think that they must be getting quite concerned, quite worried Because this is really specific. After two days, the Passover's coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, perhaps a detail that's important for us to understand, and critical, at least it was helpful to me, and that's why I want to express this this morning, is we need to kind of understand a little bit of the background of the world that Jesus lived in. Jesus last, or, or the, the, the Jesus last week, which we're entering upon here, um, really sets the context and the, and the tone for the environment in which he lived. The corruption of the temple priesthood that existed in Jesus' time was absolutely unbelievable. Now, you think of the temple, it's the, it's the heart and soul of the faith of the people of Israel. And God's very presence dwelt in the temple. But in the, in the century before Christ came, and during the period that he was here and thereafter, the chief priests had become extremely corrupt. Throughout the history of Israel, as you know, high priests were chosen by lot from the, tree, from the tribe of Levi. Herod, however, was threatened by the power of the priesthood. So he ignored that and said, I'll appoint the priest, the high priest. And then... Once he had done that, the position was subsequently brought with bribes from the wealthy Sadducean families who agreed to keep peace with Rome in exchange for wealth from the temple ties and the sale of sacrificial animals. Now, at the time of Christ, the priestly family that had been in power for a long time was the house of Annas, or another way of pronouncing his name is Ananias. Annas... Is, we're told about him in the Gospel of John. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Annas himself served for nine years. But then it was a family affair because then he appointed his own sons and then eventually his son-in-law, whose name was Caiaphas, Joseph Caiaphas. Now, this family was extremely wealthy and corrupt. They functioned, I think the only way to really describe this is they, they operated like the mafia, The godfather was Annas, and he controlled the position even when his sons were given the title of high priest. And let me explain what I mean by this. The family of Annas, they owned the flocks from which the sacrificial animals had to come that were to be offered in the temple. They controlled the money-changing tables, the exchangers. In fact, they were called the booths of Annas. 
They charged greatly inflated prices on the sacrificial animals. They extorted money, and they stole funds intended to support other priests who had no other income. Now, this family also controlled the temple treasury. They managed the temple police, and they presided over the Sanhedrin council, the Jewish council and court. Now, the Jews of Jesus' time hated this corruption. There was a lot of tension between the normal Jewish populace. You can imagine, you come to Jerusalem to, to do your thing, and you're forced to pay these exorbitant prices when you have a perfectly good lamb, perhaps you bought with you as part of your entourage, they won't let you do that. In fact, one group called the Essenes, you've probably heard of them, they were so annoyed, so angry with this corruption that they separated themselves completely, went elsewhere in the, in the land of Israel and separated themselves from worship of the temple. They considered it completely defiled. John the Baptist also spoke against this priesthood, saying that the Messiah would come to clear his threshing floor, an allusion to David when he first established the altar on a threshing floor. So you can, I think that's helpful to understand as we see what's happening here. When Jesus, the, the how could I say it? He's a humble but brilliant rabbi, right? His words are absolutely astounding. They just can't believe that they can't trick him or stump him with all of their clever arguments. When he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he employed a king's entrance like that foretold in the scriptures, and we've already reviewed that in, in the earlier chapters of Matthew. He was proclaiming himself as the Messiah, God's anointed king. So one of the first actions that Jesus took after that triumphal entry was to drive the, the sellers out of the temple courts. His concern was worship had been replaced by commerce, number one. But number two, he was denouncing the seller's family, the high priest's family, as he assaulted the booths of Annas where they profited from overpriced sacrifices for temple offerings. So is it any wonder in these early verses in Matthew 26 that this family is plotting murder? They're gonna, they want to kill Jesus, get rid of him. In fact, they want to kill two people, not just Jesus. They want to kill two people. Because John tells us very clearly they were after Lazarus as well. Because Lazarus was one of the most visible, obvious signs of the power of God through the Son. Jesus had raised him from the dead. And in fact, we read there that many of the high-ranking Jews, even some of the Pharisees and Sadducees, believed in Jesus when they saw what he had accomplished. So they were after Lazarus too. Isn't this ironic? Here are these people that are claiming to uphold the Torah, the, the books of Moses, thou shalt not commit murder. Here they are with a diabolical plot to kill the Lord. The Lord sternly warns his disciples in Matthew 16 to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. No wonder he indicted these religious leaders. In fact, on one occasion, he called them a generation of vipers. And Bentley gave us a good message a couple of weeks back 
on just what the problem was with these people. They didn't practice what they preached. They burdened the people with religious rituals and ceremonies of their own invention and made no efforts to help these people bear these burdens. All these rituals done in a very public way with the scriptures on their forehead and so on to receive the praise and glory from others. For all of this, Jesus pronounces all these woes on them and the guilt and the punishment that would surely await them. Now, I want you to notice something about this. These, these guys, these schemers, these, these wicked people, they have a plan. They're going to apprehend Jesus, but not during the feast. Oh, no, we can't have this happen on Passover or anything, anything too close to that because they knew that because of the popular following that Jesus had that it would cause a riot. And so it was to be a stealth operation after the Passover, hopefully with very few people noticing that Jesus had just mysteriously disappeared. Now, I enjoy thinking about this. Our blessed Lord in no way was he affected by this planning. He's in total control of the circumstances. Let me illustrate what I mean. Very interesting little thing that perhaps we just skim over. Judas had no idea where the Lord would celebrate the Passover. Only two disciples were sent into the city, and even they didn't know where it was going to be because the city is teeming with pilgrims, with people. It's just a madhouse. There's people everywhere. And when they entered the city, they were told, Peter and John, that's the two that were sent, that they would meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. And he would lead them to the place where the Passover would be prepared. Now, Judas could not have tipped off the religious leaders ahead of time because he didn't know the plans for the Passover. I think that's very interesting. Our Lord would become the sacrificial lamb on Passover, and it would be done in a very public way, in a very conspicuous place, and the Lord is in total control in spite of the scheming of all these people who think they're so smart and are plotting murder. I think that's just amazing. It reminds me, when I, when I was looking at this, it reminded me of Psalm 2. Remember that psalm? Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. What does it say in verse 4? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So I just want you to be aware that in spite of what looked like really difficult circumstances here, the Lord is in total control. And the purposes of God in Christ will be fulfilled in the way that he is appointed, not in the way that these religious leaders think. So we have the religious leaders' conspiracy. Let's move to the second point in our bulletin, a remarkable act of worship. And you notice the woman here is not named. Now, we could go down a path here, which is probably not very profitable, and so I decided to discard all the, all the information I was gathering on this issue. Um, there's been a lot of work done to try to harmonize the alabaster box of ointment and the act of worship across the four Gospels. Just bear with me for today, at least, even if you don't agree totally with what I'm saying. Just work with me here because I think there are three different anointings in the scriptures. Because if you try to harmonize these together, you will run into all kinds of difficulty. 
and why struggle with it? Luke 7, we have the Lord in Galilee, a different place, and a woman that's a sinner, and she anoints the Savior, his feet. And the purpose there is the whole lesson about forgiveness. Who owes the most? In John 12, prior to the triumphal entry, at the house of Lazarus with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, we have the second anointing. Again, the feet of the Lord are anointed. And Mary does this out of her love and devotion to the Savior who she knew very, very, very well. But in, this, in Matthew and Mark, which I think those two are probably the same incident, this happens after the triumphal entry and just before the crucifixion. Interesting that in this last one, his head is anointed, not his feet. And I was thinking how beautiful that is. During the years of his public ministry, his feet were anointed. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who carry the gospel of peace. Here we have these women in devotion, wiping the Savior's feet with their hair and anointing him with precious ointment. But now, the days of public ministry are over, and we are at the cusp of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And his head is anointed as the one who is the Holy One, set apart, sanctified, consecrated, for the work of salvation. I, would, I, rejo I rejoice to think about that. So just, just bear with me on the three anointings. I think it's helpful. The house is Simon the leper. We don't know who this is, but obviously he must have been healed by the Lord or else he would have been segregated, segregated from the common population. I've, I put a slide together to help us with worship. So if we could put that slide up. I've entitled it Worship, and there are many, many good definitions of worship. I by no means say these are a definitive list, but perhaps these statements help to understand what worship is. It's the overflow of a grateful heart under a sense of divine favor. Another person has said it's really the idea of worthship. In other words, something that's of really high value, inestimable worth, worthship. So, another said to regard with the highest respect, honor, or devotion. And then one that I particularly like, esteem and praise for inherent excellence. This, to me, just epitomizes our Savior. Now, there's two books I would recommend to you um, on worship. Um, they're in my library, a book by A.P. Gibbs on, it's entitled The Christian's Highest Occupation, and that's what I have at the bottom of this slide, The Christian's Highest Occupation. That's just an excellent book. Another resource is a book by Daniel Smith, an English preacher called Worship and Remembrance, 52 Meditations on the Sinner's Friend. Just excellent. So in our passage today, we see a woman do something really remarkable, a sincere act of true worship. The location, as I mentioned, Simon the leper in Bethany, and the alabaster flask. Now, alabaster is a soft mineral. Um, there are many, many beautiful things made out of alabaster because it's carvable. It's almost like a little bit like a soapstone. 
and it can be carved and sculptured. The expensive ointment is likely spikenard. This plant grows in the Himalayan mountains in India at very high altitudes, 11,000 to 17,000 feet. The plant and its oil have been used since ancient times in traditional medicines, and the oil derived from the underground roots of the plant is used as a perfume and in religious ceremonies. This perfume, by the way, is mentioned in the Song of Solomon, so it's been around for a long time. You can imagine trying to harvest this at those high altitudes and actually go through the expense of processing it. It took a lot of money to buy this ointment. A, a year's wages, basically, to acquire it. Notice, just in passing, that this is three times the amount promised to Judas for Jesus' betrayal. I think this just shows the value that this, this woman, this dear woman, put on the Lord before her. Now, I'd just like to notice real quickly, and there's much could be said about this, but uh, I'm going to move through this really quickly. I just want you to notice maybe five or six different things here. Number one, under this point number two, this woman acted alone in a deliberate way, not seeking the permission of others or looking for approval. Her act of devotion came from her own heart, and she wanted to do something special for Jesus, and she did so. That should be like us should be an individual exercise. Two, she did this act of worship for Christ alone, not anybody else. Did any of the other disciples have this inclination? And I was thinking, you know, often we act um, from a sense of moral duty, but not from the heart. True worship comes from our hearts. It's really an expression of, of really love and admiration that does not count the cost. Jesus said on one occasion, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This, the woman's actions clearly reveal her heart as she poured out her most valuable treasure onto the feet of Jesus. You can imagine, maybe this woman was saving this flask and this really expensive ointment for her own betrothal, some, you know, her own wedding to someone, or whatever it would be, save for a very special occasion. She took the best that she had and she gave it to the Lord. She saw worth. She saw value in him. An old hymn says it this way, what has stripped the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not the sense of right or duty, but the sense of peerless worth. How true this is. A woman expressed in her actions the words of Solomon, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. The alabaster vial was expensive. It cost her something. And true worship in our case does involve sacrifice. Hebrews 13 speaks of worship as a sacrifice of praise, and sacrifice denotes cost. Remember when Abraham, the very first mention of worship in the Bible is when Abraham took Isaac to Mount Moriah. He was asked to offer up his only son, the thing that was most precious to him and the one in whom all his hopes were centered. Abraham was prepared to do this no matter the cost. King David numbered the people, made a big mistake. Big plague came over the nation. And, it's, and one, then because of intercession, King David being so repentant for what he had done, the spot where the plague stopped, he wanted to build an altar 
And the man who owned the land on that place very graciously offered to give it to the king, including the animals for sacrifice. David said, no, no, no. I am not going to offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. He insisted that he pay the man a fair price. So worship does involve cost in our lives, time spent in spiritual preparation, study of the scriptures, because if you don't study the scriptures, if you don't look at these things and review things, you'll have no way of really understanding or appreciating the beautiful attributes of God. Furthermore, giving our substance to help with furthering his kingdom. This is a great blessing. So the energy, time, and financial support that we offer to the Lord brings joy and pleasure to his heart. Now the disciples object. They call this waste. It could have been used for a better purpose, but you know how wrong they were. How wrong they were. There's nothing more purposeful in our lives than true worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're always going to have the poor with them. Yes, it's good to help the poor. He's not saying that. It's wonderful to help the poor, but let's get our priorities straight. Worship is far more important. I like the commendation of the Lord just in conclusion on this point. She has done a beautiful thing. Only once in history could the Lord's body be anointed for burial. Did she understand the Lord's words regarding his imminent death? Probably not fully, but she's commended by the Lord himself. Her timing was perfect. Furthermore, what she did will be eternally remembered. Talk about a lasting legacy. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Proverbs 10. Compare the legacy of this woman to the legacy of Judas. People are really concerned about the legacy they will leave. Even for the world's most wealthy, their achievements are soon forgotten, and the sands of time erase slowly but surely the memory of them completely. Not so with this woman. I think this is a really encouragement for the sisters among us. You know, the Lord... The, this, this woman and the other women at the other anointings seem to have more perception than perhaps the most learned disciples. They seem to have a more, a, a more deeper understanding of what was appropriate and when to do it. And so this is quite encouraging. And who did the Lord reveal himself to first when he rose from the dead? It was Mary, a woman. So I think that's really remarkable. So a remarkable act of worship. Let's move quickly to the treachery of Judas Iscariot. And I'd like to read beyond where we stopped reading in verse 14 of our chapter, Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And then just drop down to the end of when the Passover was being celebrated. We'll get to this in a second. But I just wanted to read these other verses. Verse 21, and as they were eating, that is the Passover, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. 
The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. The treachery of Judas Iscariot. Now, why did Judas decide to betray Jesus? I would suggest to you he loved money. He saw an opportunity to get even more than what he was already getting by stealing from the communal pot of money that the disciples shared. His treachery moves to another whole level. Now he makes a deal with the chief priests and these corrupt people that I've been speaking about. Can you imagine how delighted they were? We've got a guy on the inside. This is going to be a piece of cake. Our plan that we've all laid out as to how this is all going to happen, it's going to work just perfectly because now we have one of the disciples on our side. Notice a couple of things about Judas that uh, might be helpful. Judas didn't have a momentary weakness and just make a mistake. He'd been stealing for a long time. And he did it quite well because in the verses I read about the Passover incident, they didn't suspect him. They didn't all turn and look at Judas and say, well, it's got to be him. No, not at all. They didn't suspect him at all. So he'd been doing this for a while. What started as a small sin in his own life kept growing. And he gave an opening for the devil to enter his heart. In fact, we read in John 13 specifically that Satan entered into Judas at this occasion. Take care, brothers and sisters, that we don't let the devil into our hearts by repeatedly sinning against God and not confessing it and abandoning those sins. Secondly, Judas was very soon to find out that everything he was doing and planning was all known to the Lord. How could he have deceived himself in this way? It's really quite remarkable. The way of transgressors is certainly hard. There was no excuse for him not recognizing that everything is open to the eyes of him with whom we must give account. Judas was eyewitness to the Lord's almighty perception of those who came to him with evil intent and wrong motives. Why did he think he was an exception? The lesson for us is to fear God. He knows everything about us, and someday we must give an account. This is quite sobering. The Lord knows everything about us, even when we think perhaps he doesn't. He does. Now, Judas was a false professor, the third point. He was going through the motions, but he was not a true disciple. He looked good on the outside, but his heart was not right with God. When I was younger, we used to sing a hymn as part of a, a gospel hymn that went like this. Awake, false professor. Oh, think not thy form will shield thee from wrath in that pitiless storm. When the judgment of God as great billows shall roll in dire destruction or each Christless soul. Our Lord had indicated to us here that it had been better if, if Judas had not been born. A total wasted life with Judas experiencing total destruction and eternal punishment. You know, at times it's not a bad idea to just 
check the foundations of our faith. I'm not suggesting we go through life doubting. That's not what I mean. But I remember hearing somebody one time saying that he was having a lot of doubts. And so he went back and he reviewed the scriptures and kind of said to himself, what am I trusting in? What am I believing in? Can I take these promises that Jesus made at face value? And he was able to personally embrace and once again, calm his heart with what the Savior has promised. I think you can find reassurance and joy in recognizing again that we are anchored on the solid rock. What a beautiful thing to, to know that we are saved forever and that we are trusting in something that's absolutely sure. I think it's, it's unfortunate. You know, some people say, well, if I could have only been here when the Lord lived, if I could have seen the miracles myself, if I could have maybe just walked and talked with him, and if I could have seen all those things, man, it wouldn't be hard to believe. It'd be, it'd be easy. I would, just, I would just accept it. Not the case. Judas had the place of ultimate privilege. He saw everything. And yet, he lost his soul. What a sad commentary. I want like you to notice the contrast between this woman who anointed the Lord he, she valued the Lord so highly, and Judas placed little value on the Lord. One, there's a mark for you. A mark of a true believer is their appreciation of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. That's, to me, one of the vital signs of a true Christian, the value that they place on Jesus, recognizing that he's our Savior and friend. And so I would urge you today, if you don't know Christ as personal Savior, even if you're in this place of privilege, surrounded by Christians that love and know the Lord, put your faith in him. You need to be individually saved and come to the knowledge of who he is. I'd like to transition now to the fourth point in the bulletin, transition uh, from Passover to the Lord's Supper. Let's read verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for us to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city and a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. Passover is a remembrance of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And Exodus 12 gives us the precise details. And my personal feeling is there is unique beauty in Exodus 12 because it foreshadows so clearly, so perfectly, what Jesus would accomplish as the Lamb of God. So this next slide is a little bit busy, but I wanted to give you some things to at least perhaps encourage you and Maybe give you something that would thrill your heart. I hope it does. It certainly did for me. I'd like to share these thoughts with you. The first point in Exodus 12 is the lamb was examined to make sure it was perfect. The lamb was watched from the 10th to the 14th day. In other words, the lamb couldn't be limping around. It couldn't be sick, whatever. 
The lamb had to be perfect, no defects. Just so we see perfection in Christ's life on earth. His earthly ministry was without any blemish, whatever. He demonstrated during that entire time that he was perfect without fault, perfect humanity. Secondly, the blood of the innocent lamb was taken. The lamb was killed, of course, his blood was then taken. That must have been a terrible thing to have to do that. Perfect little lamb, nothing wrong with it, innocence. And yet its life must be taken because its blood must be shed. Its blood was not only shed, but remember the hyssop was taken, dipped into the bowl of blood, and the blood was applied to the lintel and side posts of the door. In this way, the destroying angel would pass over the household and spare the firstborn from God's wrath. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, notice with me that the blood must be applied in obedience to the command of God. If you just killed the lamb, but you didn't apply the blood, it's bad news. The destroying angel would wreak his vengeance, wreck his vengeance upon your household. We must apply the blood of Christ to the doorposts of our own hearts and by faith accept him as our sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. And so, individually, we must apply the work of Christ. The third thing in this chart, ample provision in the Lamb. I like the expression, and by the way, don't fault me, this is not theological you couldn't build a theological structure on top of what I'm saying. I just notice little things that give me joy. If the household be too little for the lamb, then share it with your neighbor. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Every man. There is individual participation in eating the lamb. And by faith, each of us as individuals, we partake of Christ. And we appreciate that there's ample provision in the lamb doesn't say the lamb is too little for the household. It says that the household will be too little for the lamb. I like that. Passover marked a new beginning for ancient Israel. This month shall be to you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. For every believer, just so, there's a new beginning because of the lamb. Exactly what the New Testament tells us about this experience of personal salvation, a new beginning. The next point on this slide is the day is commemorated as a memorial. In other words, you always look back to the Lamb. What does it say in Exodus 12? This day shall be to you for a memorial. You shall keep it a feast by ordinance for forever. In other words, always look back to the Lamb. And just so we look back via the Lord's Supper to the Lamb of God. The last point on this slide, the people bowed their heads and worshipped. In Exodus 12, toward the end of that chapter, after a lot of instruction was given, what does it say? The people bowed their heads and worshipped. Just so we are caused to worship as we think of the great deliverance that we've experienced, Jesus has saved us from the wrath of God and from the bondage of sin. 
These are just a few points that I've enjoyed looking at Passover and how beautifully it depicts what Jesus would fulfill in a much grander and greater sense when he gave himself as our sacrifice upon the cross. So let's see now in a conclusion here how the Lord institutes a new remembrance that supersedes the Passover. Let's read verse um, 20. Let's see here if I can see it. Right verse number here. Verse number 26. Let's just read a couple of verses here toward the uh, 26 to 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now our Lord takes the bread, in this case it would have been the unleavened bread from the Passover, which had been prepared and says, take eat, this is my body. In other words, this bread symbolizes my body which is given for you as God's lamb. Now, the Lord is sitting there physically with them. So it couldn't have been his actual body. It's over there sitting, reclining with them. He says, take eat, this is my body. In other words, this is a symbol of my body which is going to be given for you. He also takes a cup of wine and instructs them each to drink from it. And he says, this cup is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now we can be assured that the, the Lord intended these items to be used as reminders of what he would accomplish on the cross. And I was thinking like, this must have been just an amazing thing. What, what thoughts and emotions must have flooded over Jesus as he gives thanks for the bread and wine, knowing full well that in just a few hours he would suffer on the cross and he would be the fulfillment of those memorial things, those symbols. Now this slide, the Lord's Supper that is coming up now, highlights two things. Both Passover and the Lord's Supper serve as powerful reminders of what God has done. And both properly observed should evoke worship from our hearts. As I've tried to just state here real simply, Old Testament Israel, every year they look back to the Exodus through the Passover meal. But we as New Testament saints, we look back to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How? Through the Lord's Supper. So this Lord's Supper is such a critical and important important remembrance. The Lord said to us, and we've, we know these verses well, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, the cup symbolizing, of course, the contents that are therein, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. This do in remembrance of me. It's interesting that in his death and resurrection, the Lord has accomplished a far greater exodus than what Israel experienced. Why do I say that? For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. 
Daniel Smith, who I mentioned earlier, the author of the book, an English preacher, says about this, about the Lord's Supper, nothing will help believers keep pure and wholesome more than the constant partaking of this remembrance feast. It warms the frigid atmosphere of the world. It will help you climb adversity's hill. It will enable you to struggle with resisting tides. It will revive and invigorate you each time you partake with a true heart. I think that expresses it very well. The Gospel Coalition, which is an excellent website, is, uh, also has a little article written by um, an individual entitled, Where to Look During the Supper. I thought that was interesting. Uh, he's, he's indicating in this article that the scripture encourages us to look in the multiple directions when we remember the Lord uh, at the Lord's Supper. First of all, we look back. We look back with gratitude to Jesus and his death at the cross. Next, we look around. We look around at the body of believers with whom we share the supper. It's something to do as we come together and discern the body of Christ as we eat together. It's significant that we share this as a community. And although we occasionally partake of it individually in our homes, the whole point is that it should be done as a collective thing as much as we can. Sharing the one bread together is our sign of fundamental unity, 1 Corinthians 10. So we look back, we look around. We also look up. We look to heaven where the risen and ascended Christ, the one whom we are remembering in his death, is now in heaven. He's above us. And he intercedes for us as our great high priest. And lastly, as indicated even in this passage, we look forward. We look back. We look around. We look up. We look forward to the day when Jesus will return. The celebration of the supper serves as a proclamation of Jesus' death, which anticipates his return. The ultimate outworking of God's salvation plan has long been associated with the promise of a great banquet. I have one minute left, so I'm going to skip to my final point. I would just admonish us all, it's good to remember the Lord. Some say, I don't feel worthy. And Ben was mentioning this this morning. I thought this was quite interesting. None of us do. Come anyway. Others say, I have sinned. Then confess that sin and come to the Lord's table. Don't stay away. Your faith, once again, will be renewed as you review what the foundations of your faith. In conclusion, the Lord says to his disciples, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Again, a lot more could be said about this particular verse, but just suffice it to say this, it seems on the whole best to understand it as a prophecy of the great marriage supper of the Lamb and the joys that await the faithful in the new heavens and the new earth. The reference seems to be to the heavenly feast, which will be our portion in the glorified life. The new wine signifies perhaps the new immortal existence far beyond this veil of tears. We shall be changed. This mortal shall put on immortality. What a joy. What a glorious future. Could you bow in prayer as we close? Father, it's beautiful to contemplate that Christ himself will be in fellowship with us in that glorious coming kingdom.
No longer any need for the symbols given to us in the Lord's Supper. We shall be in the immediate, his immediate presence forever and enjoy unbroken communion with him. Oh Lord, what a day that will be. In the meantime, as we seek to serve him here below, help us to be faithful, to come and remember him, and to once again rejoice in the foundations of our faith. We ask your parting blessing in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed. bow your heads with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, God, you are so good to us. God, you've given us instructions on how to wait well for you. It seems like a lot, but you've given us your riches. You've given us your Holy Spirit, everything we need to be successful in this endeavor. And when we fail you, as we often do, you love us, you pick us up, you dust us off, and you say, try again. And so we say, like a bride waiting for her groom, even so, Lord Jesus, please come. We love you, Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed.